Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, June 20th. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. Hi, I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thirst Aid Kit. I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. So good to be back, you guys. I was bummed to miss the live show, Nicole, but I hear it went really well. Yeah, it was a great time. Um, but you were off being busy and happy and <laughs> in love. <laughs> so yeah. I think you got, you know, a, a pretty good end of the bargain there. <laughs> I did. Yeah, I was on my uh, honeymoon in P-Town, which then I came back to immediately go into D.C. Pride. So it was like just a big, the world's gayest week that I had. It was <laughs> incredible. So much fun. I'm still finding bits of like glitter and confetti in all of the stuff that I had packed for that weekend. Um, but here we are back in the real world about to talk about some really great topics. Uh, yes. Today we're going to start with the U.S. women's national soccer team. They're dominating the World Cup, um, but they've come under some fire for celebrating too hard after their first match. They beat Thailand's national team 13-0, and they were ecstatically celebrating on the field. Some people thought that they were being bad sports. Then we're going to talk about the disgraced women of the Trump administration in light of the news that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is leaving the White House. And finally, the UK has banned sexist stereotypes in advertising. Is that good? Is that enforceable? Listen and find out. Uh, And Marsha, why don't you tell us about our Slate Plus segment this week? So a listener wrote in an intriguing email about the question of homework. Is assigning homework to children based on the assumption that there is a parent at home, comma, usually a mom, who will help them with it, is that sexist? All right, let's listen to a little snippet of that conversation. I was looking on the internet to see if this had been written about before, and I saw a lot of discussion of projects that teachers assign that seem meant for a parent to do, and people were calling it mom homework. So this is clearly a question that a lot of people are thinking about, although I don't think everyone is thinking about it in terms of you know the sexist and gender implications, but more in just the unfair to put this burden on parents' expectations. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right, the Women's World Cup. It's happening in France right now. The U.S. women's national soccer team, they're awesome. They beat Thailand in their first round match. It was the most lopsided win in World Cup history. That's for women's and men's. So it was a total blowout. It was crazy in part because the U.S. actually scored 10 of their 13 goals in the second half. So it, you know, the whole second half, it was just like, boom, boom, boom. Some people watching their, you know, ecstatic celebrations 
a lot of male sports commentators especially thought the players were behaving like poor sports because even on goal 10, goal 11, goal 12, they were, you know, lifting each other up, running around the field, engaging in some looked like a little bit choreographed celebrations. Um, So, you know, no one should begrudge them the points themselves because in the World Cup, every goal scored matters. They're used to break ties later in the tournament. But even Hope Solo, who used to be a goalkeeper on the team, and some other women's soccer players were saying, you know, this sort of leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Hope Solo wrote an op-ed in The Guardian saying as much. Meanwhile, you've got Abby Wambach, another former U.S. star, sort of the grand dame of the sport, uh, comes out and tweets, stop judging these women with patriarchal glasses. You would never say this about a men's team. Nicole, what was your take on this? Yeah. I actually kind of agree with the people who say it was poor sportsmanship. Um, One, I want to be clear that I think that they should have um, celebrated their goals. Absolutely. I don't want to take that from them. But I don't think you need the choreographed routines. I don't think you need the, you know, it started to take away from the time of the game, it seemed like, just from the clips that I saw, because I did not watch it as it was you know, happening. So I looked at some clips and everything, but it did seem like it was kind of, you know, pulling away from the game a little bit. And I I think they could have just done, you know, kept doing some clapping as they got back into formation or whatever, you know, they could have definitely acknowledged and cheer for themselves and, and honored the goals that they made. But I don't think they could, have, they needed to do, um, the kind of excessive celebrating that they did. I, I do think that's a little, you know, poor sportsmanship, but I do respect that they wanted to keep playing. They wanted to honor their opponents by continuing to play as strongly and as well as they were doing. So I'm glad that they did not just decide, oh, well, we don't need any more goals, so here's a freebie for you. You know, that kind of behavior, because I think that definitely would have um been, I mean, if we think this is poor sportsmanship, just kind of giving up would have definitely been an insult. And we would probably be having a different conversation about that um, mm. now. But yeah, I'm I'm a little torn. Um, I do think they could have toned it down a little bit. Marshall, what did you think? I'm, I'm really, I, I feel very, very torn on this. Um, not because I particularly believe in this idea of like, you know, being good sport. I think for children, that's important. But I think that when professional athletes are expected to be good sports, it kind of minimizes the fact that they're professionals. And while we expect a professional code of conduct, I don't know about how these conversations about celebration, um, how it it kind of undermines the fact that they are at work Mm -hmm. and these are... um, professional women at work. I mean, it's that weird thing about the kind of unspoken rules of kind of making it in the workplace and the ways that women are often advised to demure um, to situations in which they are congratulated for good work or to be modest. So some of that kind of runs through the conversation. But with that being said, I do think that there is a separate conversation that hopefully can emerge about what does it mean for women in sports to have these moments because they have so few. I mean, U.S. um, women's soccer is in the midst of 
all sorts of conflicts about parity and pay and their popularity. They're more popular than the men, but they don't get the same resources. So there's a way that this, I, this critique, I don't know if it entirely is coming from just a critique of their performance in those games or in that particular game, or if it's about this kind of larger contentious issue that women's soccer players have raised about the conditions in which they work. Yeah, I at first I thought, you know, I disagree with Abby Wambach. I would absolutely criticize a men's team who did this, especially, you know, the watching the Thai players sort of crying. But then I realized if if I was watching men's players cry, you know, on the losing team, I'd be like, oh, poor baby, you know, like you're a professional athlete and you just lost a game, like suck it up, you get paid a ton of money. But for women, I actually think there is a reason to feel for the the losing team, but also the people on both teams because they don't get paid as much as the men. They don't get the same sorts of sponsorships and endorsements. And every Women's World Cup, we're confronted with that lack of investment in women's sports in the U.S., but especially outside the U.S. And, you know, besides the U.S. and a few other countries that really have the resources to invest heavily in women's sports. And it the sad part of this now is that instead of talking about the great players, the athleticism on display, these new players who are getting a chance to show their skills. And and that's part of the reason why we want to celebrate the goals is that for some of these people, it's their first World Cup. It's their first goal in a World Cup. It's a big deal no matter what. This is like the the pinnacle of their careers. It, it reminds me of in politics where we're, we have to talk about the sexism and sexism ends up sort of poisoning the discourse, not just because of sexism itself, but because we're forced to talk about it, it sucks up all of the air and energy that that could be spent talking about the actual athletes or the actual politicians. And instead, we're just forced to like arbitrate and dissect the sexism of it. Right. You know, I think about when like the restaurants where the wait staff have to come out every time someone has a birthday and sing some little terrible song <laughs> or, you know, you're in an ice cream shop and they ring a bell, you know, for whatever, I can't, you know, whatever reason. And, you know, the employees start to lose their enthusiasm. They start, they, you know, they do their job, but, it, you know, you can tell the difference between, okay, this is clearly the start of their shift and this is the end of their shift, you know? And um, so I, you know, I want to, recognize that it's great that the U.S. women's soccer team continue to keep that enthusiasm. Um, but also, it's just kind of like, didn't you get tired? <laughs> like, didn't, didn't you want to take a little break? <laughs> and just kind of like, you know, focus that onto another goal. I don't know. But I guess it doesn't matter because they scored so many goals. It was like a record-breaking game. But I just, of course, they played well. But it could have just been like, you know, some hand claps and pats on the back and you just keep going so instead of the, let's the outlandish thing. What are, what are you concerned about exactly? That the Thai players are are going to feel even worse about themselves if they if the, you know, team that's beating them is cheering and clapping and celebrating? What concerns me is the fact that we're having this conversation, that it could have been avoided if the team had just kind of been like, OK, great job. Let's keep going. Let's keep the hustle moving. Let's just, you know, keep our head in the game and let's go, you know, instead of just like 
having this outsized celebration. And then it all, it kind of, again, just from the clips, because I didn't watch it live, so I don't know what, like, the emotion was in the, in the moment. So going back and seeing the clips, it did kind of seem like, and I could be projecting, but it did kind of seem like... <laughs> uh, a little forced after a while, mm. like we're just gonna keep this going, you know. F y'all, we're gonna make sure that we continue this kind of this high level of celebration for everything. It doesn't matter, and I do think that it is kind of speaking to the larger issues of equal pay. Um, that, th- that I think maybe the team wanted to make a point that we are worthy of getting the money that we're suing for. Hmm. I also think it's about building morale because it's their first game of the tournament. I interpreted it as being about, you know, we need to really rally behind every player who scores a goal um, because this is a big moment for us. It's the start of what we hope will be an incredibly successful tournament. So one of the things that I get really activated by conversations about what athletes should do because this also in other contexts, I think in men's sports sometimes has like this weird um, racial element to it about how black players should conduct themselves. And I think the probably biggest example we uh, or corollary to that um, in women's sports is sometimes the Serena um, Williams, like how she should act at work. And I'm so sensitive to that because while I think that, there is, you know, a conversation about how to be a graceful, you know, competitor. And, you know, I think at the end of the game, there was this photograph of Alex Morgan hugging this Thai player named uh, Miranda Nild, and they both went to UC Berkeley together. And she kind of hugged her after the game and was like, you know, you're a good player. And so I think that there were moments of grace. But all of that is to say that in conversations about the NBA and the NFL and about penalties for excessive celebration, they're often about how African-American players conduct themselves, about dancing after touchdowns, you know, getting really excited. In college sports, this comes up too, about the way that young men celebrate and so I think that there is already a framework within sports that if you are a n- not white male athlete, the ways you're supposed to conduct yourself and it becomes this thing where there's real disparity on the criticism, you know, not to kind of go deep down the rabbit hole. But if you look at some of the behaviors of white male athletes, like people like Johnny Manziel, um, who are just considered a little kooky and a little bit of a troublemaker who had a really, really really obnoxious presence in college sports and then had a lot of personal problems in professional sports, there's a way that that's forgiven. And so all of this is to say that these conversations about conduct and behavior, I think sometimes are not about the sport, but about a real resistance to accept different types of people within the context of sports. Huh. Yeah. And there's a sort of broader framework of inequity and unequal treatment, too, that comes up every Women's World Cup and in really in any sort of international sports tournament. I just want to also call out one listener who wanted us to discuss whether it's sexist to call it the Women's World Cup, like the World Cup for her. Uh, But I'm going to (laughs) continue calling it that just because that's sort of what the world calls it. But um, every Women's World Cup is played in the shadows of these questions of sexist treatment and underinvestment. But it's, it's also connected to 
global economies and colonialism and histories of exploitation, like looking into why some women's teams, you know, are less prepared for the World Cup. It's it's not just about which countries are sexist and don't invest in women's sports. You know, in the U.S., we have Title IX. There are a lot of ways in which women here get more resources to participate in athletics than women in some other countries do. But sometimes it's just about countries don't have the money to invest in athletics, period. You know, in Thailand, for instance, their men's team has not made it to the World Cup in in decades, if ever. And we're in a position when we watch these countries compete against each other where, like, there's this sort of nationalist, like, rallying around the teams. And I participate in it, too. Like, I love the U.S. women's national team. But then it sort of comes down to, you know, like, which country is better or, like, which country is spending more money on getting its athletes prepared. And so when I was reading about these two teams, the U.S. and Thailand, playing against each other, some people were saying, like, you know, to respect your opponent, you have to play your best. And that if the spectacle of the U.S. women's team celebrating so much made you uncomfortable, then, you know, it's time to advocate for more equal investment in women's sports across the world. But that's not always possible. Like in the U.S., there's just more money available to like train people. Right. You know, but I think even if this was, you know, the men's match, I would still kind of want to scold them if they were doing such performative celebrations against a 34th ranked team. I understand why there is concern about it. And I do think obviously that there is some sexism here at play. But I I would still be like, okay, guys, you know, just calm down a little bit. But I'm also just kind of <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm not really a person who's like, you have to be buttoned up all the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not anything like that at all. Um, but I do think it, it is kind of poor sportsmanship. Like you can celebrate and you can acknowledge your goals and you can still honor the team that you're playing against by committing fully to the game and still, you know, playing your best. But I think that there is also a way to just recognize, OK, we're kind of putting a hurting on them in a particular way that, you know, is a bit more unexpected than we intended. And maybe we should just keep our heads down and and keep going. I I just feel bad about the whole situation that we're distracting from the win by having to talk about this. I think the one thing I will say that I, I do appreciate how this conversation really challenges us to think about like all our kind of baggage and our ideas about professionalism. What does it mean to be a professional, act professionally? And sometimes it is um, a euphemism to try to exclude, but I do appreciate that there is an expectation of how you conduct yourself at work so that you're not terrible, you're not ruining other people's time, and that there is some graciousness. I wish that we could explore this issue without having to really contend with some of these bigger, larger structural inequalities in women's sports. Yeah. I I will say it's Uh, it's clarified for me the way that even some of the people who are playing against the U.S. women's national team, which is, you know, they won the previous World Cup. They're widely recognized as one of the best teams in the world. Some of the people playing against them, like a lot of the women on the Thai team, were sort of starstruck and and loved being able to play against them. And they knew that they were going to get beat really badly. And so a lot of them were sort of talking to reporters or tweeting afterwards, like, it was incredible to be able to meet this team and to shake their hands afterwards. Like, they were playing against each other, but they definitely were not beginning on equal footing. 
listeners, do you have thoughts? Was it sexist? Was Were the comments that commentators made sexist? You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. Trump women, the women of the Trump administration. Last week, Donald Trump announced that Sarah Huckabee Sanders, his longtime communications associate and White House press secretary, would be leaving the White House. She's one of three women in the Trump administration whose lies on behalf of the president have come under renewed scrutiny in recent months. Marsha, you suggested this topic, so tell us what you've been thinking. Well, any time to remind the general public about the disgraceful behavior of members of the Trump administration. (laughs) I get very excited about because um, they have successfully normalized lying, deceit, obfuscation, um, falsely claiming sexism to evade responsibility for their problematic behaviors, that it is a big moment that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is going to leave the White House. And so I think what's been interesting is since this announcement, there's been a lot of pieces, a retrospective of her her lying and her different strategies to not just kind of protect um, the president and his excesses and his bad behavior, but to also undermine the power of a free press. And I think that this is a really good moment to think about what does it mean for um, for her, for Kellyanne Conway to continue in her role as an advisor, for Hope Hicks, the also disgraced former member of this administration, what does it mean for them to operate as representatives of what does it mean to be a Trump woman? And mm-hmm. it seems like the common thread among those women, and I would include his daughter in this, even though that's slightly different, um, Amarosa, when she was entangled with the president, again, was this type of person where your job as a woman is to make sure that the men who do ridiculous things are never held accountable. And so on one hand, it's this really kind of feminized helpmate role. Mm -hmm. And on the other, it's like pure evil. And it's some (laughs) of the worst types of (laughs) excessive behavior that we often um, attribute to men and their um, ways of consolidating power. And so as people do these wrap-ups of her time at the White House, it's just really appalling. And some of it is so um, upsetting because it has normalized a kind of mode of engagement with the White House that they depend on and that they are just really good at. So I love reading these stories that are looking at her career and really challenging um, the ways that entire segments of the population have just accepted it as perfectly professional or okay when it's so clearly not. I think it's significant that all three of these women, Huckabee Sanders, Kellyanne Conway, Hope Hicks, um, you know, they're possibly the three most famous and powerful women in the Trump administration besides Ivanka, who has all the perks and none of the accountability of an actual job in the White House, are in communications roles. Um, I think it betrays a very Trumpian and I guess broadly conservative sense of what women can do in positions of power. They're not necessarily the brains behind the scenes. I know Kellyanne Conway was, you know, Trump's campaign manager for a while, but but mostly these are the personalities making it palatable to the public. They're in messaging. And I know women 
make up about three quarters of the PR industry, but only about one fifth of the top leadership roles in the field. And that's usually chalked up to, you know, women are better with people. They're better at communicating and empathizing uh, at, you know, serving a client's needs. And I I think that speaks to what you were saying, Marsha, in that there, you know, the there are a lot of men behind the scenes doing a lot of extremely terrible things. And then the women are sort of sent out to make it seem okay, or like put a pretty face on the problem. And these women are just crazy good at their jobs. Like, respect a little bit you know they're like some of the best people at their jobs and and i agree that they're pure evil but i have very few bad things to say about their respective job performances i i almost wish that the democrats had people like this but then i think about it and i realize that actually why they're so good at their jobs is they have no moral bounds on on what they're allowed to do it's all show there's like no substance behind it they're not held back by truth it's all just performance You know, and I I think it's interesting um, that these are all white women. And I think that that race plays um, an important factor here because they would not be allowed to get away with, you know, the level of mendacity that they have if they were not white. You know, Omarosa was I mean, she was in there for a second. And, you know, now she's not. I think about Kellyanne Conway. She's very good at scolding. We looked at the article by Lily Lufburo from The Week that's titled How Kellyanne Conway Became the Greatest Spin Doctor in Modern American History. And I really like this piece because of the way um, it broke down the types of tricks that Conway uses. Cool girling, you know, when someone says something offensive, she rolls her eyes and acts like it's no big deal. The mother splaining where she says things like it's what's in his heart that matters and not what he says. You know, the sexism where she's like, well, I'm not one of those people who, you know, is always talking about sexism. So she has all these different ways of attacking people who attack her. And I think that if she were not white, she would not get away with those kinds of things that she would you know, no one would be so quick to rush to her defense. Um, she would probably, you know, have been gone a little sooner from her reign of influence. Well, one of the things that I think is interesting about these women who have really been invested in protecting the president, it's this idea that, um, like Christina was saying, that women are in communications because women can soften a whole pile of bullshit or women can um, be the representative because they can do the soft diplomacy. They can make a, a problem look good. I mean, Hope Hicks, who, you know, when they when the New York Times is writing, like, will Hope Hicks, like, respond to a subpoena? It's like, well, will she either comply with the law or not? Like, these are, this is, it's like if someone wrote an article about me, it's like, will Marsha pay her taxes this quarter? It's like, yes, yes, I will. Like, what are you talking about? And the whole thing about, you know, the former model turned, it's an interesting way to think about how these women's um, physical appearance always, like, factor it in to the ways that even critical media fell in love with them. And I think what's also interesting is, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, her own kind of makeover in this role, in this public role, 
yeah. is also about kind of falling in line with a kind of Trump woman aesthetic. But more than anything else, what I think is just really interesting um, in one of the pieces I was reading about her is kind of how she's been a true believer in the sense that your role is to support Republican men and smooth out their inconsistencies or lie for them. And while I don't think her father, when she worked for him in Arkansas, his issues were not as complex or maybe as bad as Trump's, but this idea that it is ultimately your role and your ambition and your political purpose is to stand behind these men because they also believe in religious liberty or because they also want Mm -hmm. to end choice. And so it's these justifications that are really powerful. And to think about the ways that as this woman from Arkansas, from a very conservative Christian family who went to a Baptist college, how her role is to protect a guy like Trump really shows how deep the patriarchal structure of this world in which religion and politics fuse together and women's special role is to make sure that men are absolved of both their kind of spiritual sins as well as their social ones. Yeah, I mean, she, I I didn't realize until I was doing a little more research before this episode that, I mean, she really is a devout Christian in the sense that she prays and reads a book of devotions before every press briefing that she gives, which, by the way, she's not giving anymore. But yeah, she she like really signed on hardcore for Trump because he, like you said, was, uh, you know, going to support these religious imposition laws that allow people to, you know, deny their employees birth control or not perform an abortion just because of their religious beliefs. But Trump also gets she provides a special kind of legitimacy to him, and so does Kellyanne Conway and Hope Hicks, because you know they can speak authoritatively to the fact that it's a it's great to be a woman in the Trump administration, and any interpretation of Trump and his worldview as sexist is wrong. Because how could I be a woman in a position of power in a, a Trump administration that's sexist? And he specifically deploys them, or they deploy themselves to redirect the conversation whenever it turns to sexual assault or sexism or gender-based violence. Well, the thing that's amazing about it, it's like this slippery slope that they love to ride on. It's a three-minute process. There isn't (laughs) this issue of saying, you know, people have done bad things. We're going to take... I don't know, a day to really reflect on what this means. And we're going to really struggle with what happens in a breach in a community and all of these things. And then we're going to try to do some restorative justice. Even if they said that, I wouldn't believe a word they said. But nonetheless, it's like a three-minute process. They go through the entire, like, no one's perfect. There's been mistakes. I've been victimized, but that's okay. We're going to keep it moving and Benghazi. And then the sentence is full. (laughs) And then they move on to the next thing. And, And so it's this type of process. I mean, like the it's the it's the gaslighting and the minimization and it's so craven but it becomes like second nature that if you you know watch the when there used to be white house press briefings people would bring up very important points and it was like uh the president and i haven't talked about that but even if we did it doesn't matter because you guys are going to write lies next question it's like what <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. In that sense, I feel like they've done these women have done more damage to like political discourse and 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 press and trust of the press than almost anybody else, because their whole purpose is to make it seem like nothing matters because nothing's going to change and anything bad can just be ignored. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think that they maybe because they have been so so much 
you know, in the front, uh, front facing, that they kind of, they've just ruined everything. <laughs> like, it's just like no point in watching this stuff. Like, you know, I'm trying to have uh, a little bit of education and, you know, tune in to watch these conferences are just to see what what if anything will be shared with the American public and you I just end up very frustrated with the the lies and the ways that they dance around questions that I turn on you know turn it off fairly quickly and I'm just like okay I'll just go to Twitter and wait for someone to tweet out the pertinent parts and that you know then you have to deal with the fact that social media is always going to have a particular lens on what gets shared so I just feel very uneducated in what in the political process and in what's happening in our country right now because no one knows how to tell the truth anymore not to say that we always got the truth before this administration but it seemed like we were a bit more okay with being lied to than we are now and in such bold ways. And it doesn't seem like we can do anything about confronting that. Well, there is a world with some consequences, not all the consequences we needed, not as you know strict, but I think that there was a real sense that there could be pushback, like the White House press corps, the White House correspondents, they can say, mm, you know, you're violating this access to the public's information, this is a problem, and we're going to push back. But for this group of like, renegades, it's they, they observe no kind of standards or norms. So for you to push back against Sarah Huckabee Sanders, yeah, someone's going to pull your press pass. Like that's definitely going to happen. There isn't a question about how punitive or how um, targeted the attacks will be. And so I think as a result, she was really masterful in creating a chilling effect among the press that even as they complained about the administration, I think people were less willing to kind of stick their neck out to say like, hey, you can't run a press briefing like this, or hey, you can't lie to us every day, because they knew that um, they don't observe any kind of norms or protocols of the positions. And Kellyanne Conway just recently, you know, when people talk about her violating the Hatch Act, which means employees of the government can't be advocating against political candidates from their official position, which, you know, there was just a really scathing report from a government agency about how many times she's violated this act, you know, recommending she be fired. When reporters have confronted her about it, she literally said, like, oh, let me know when the jail sentence starts. I mean, this isn't this isn't a, a criminal act. She's not going to be sentenced to jail. But like the complete disregard for any sort of conduct of appropriate behavior just boggles my mind, not just because they're willing to do it, but because this seems like the new norm and what people are willing to accept. Like, I that didn't surprise me at all. And there's absolutely no like recourse when, you know, an entire administration worth of people is 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 willing to violate federal law. So do you guys think that they're going to that after the Trump administration, these women are going to find like more lucrative and powerful roles in politics? Or do you think that their resumes will be permanently marred by this line of the Trump administration? It will have no effect. And this is what makes me so sick about everything. The fact that Sean Spicer could get a fellowship at Harvard and write a book and act like a normal person and then like 
people are cuddling with him at events and they're making jokes about him being a big liar. Yes. This is this is a I mean maybe because of sexism, shockingly, these women might have less lo- lucrative opportunities because I think that's how it goes for women, but nonetheless there's going to be some ridiculous college campus that decides that their insights are so amazing that they're going to park them in an office. They're going to write books that people read. I'm sure there's going to be a, a Sarah Sanders um, devotional, you know, 365 prayers for the woman who <laughs> lies for a living. I mean, it's just pure and total garbage because there's no consequences. And so, oh yeah, I can't just, I cannot wait to hear about the consulting firm, the communications strategy firm, whatever that these people land in because they do, they land on their feet because there's an entire industry and it's not even about politics, it's about proximity to power. And one of the things I've learned since the election living in Washington, D.C. is that very few people are partisan and most people just love power for the sake of power. So the people who are anti-Trumpers, the people who think this is appalling, I don't think they have any real issue aligning with people within that kind of Trump world if it means bigger book deals or more lucrative opportunities. So I can't wait for the announcement of her daytime talk show where she will just be ridiculous and it will have no consequences. Hmm. I almost disagree with you about the fact that they might, you know, be subject to sexist treatment and and thus not get the lucrative book deals or whatever. I think because these are women who have proven themselves willing to mm. defend the most outrageous types of sexual assault, gender-based violence, sexism, that they will be extremely valuable to the Republican Party and, and that the Republican Party will keep using them to that end. Yeah, I, I agree. I think Sarah Huckabee Sanders is going to write a book or at least have her name attached to a book, <laughs> um, and that she... I mean, they're all going to be okay. They're, they're going to be perfectly fine. But I, I, from my understanding, I think they also have a pretty uh, significant NDA, I think, for working <laughs> in the White House. Not just like a, a typical um, White House security kind of thing, but also a Donald Trumpian kind of NDA. So I'm, I think that they would have to be very careful about how they sell whatever book projects that they have. And I wouldn't be surprised if they have to, you know, send it back to Trump or someone in his um, in his staff to, you know, read it before it goes to press. But I, I definitely think that they're going to make big money after this, even if it means they're just sitting at home and charging a billion dollars to consult with someone about political strategies or something like that. They're they're. They're going to be okay, and they're going to continue a hustle of some kind. Uh, word on the street, and by on the street, I mean coming out of Donald Trump's mouth, is that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is going to run for governor of Arkansas. So we might not have seen the last of her yet. Good riddance. Uh, <laughs> listeners, let us know what career paths you think that these <laughs> Trump women will take. You can email us at thewaves@slate.com. All right. Sexist advertising. A new ban recently went into effect in the UK, a ban on sexist advertising. Nicole, tell us about the new regulation. 
Okay, so Britain's Advertising Standards Authority, the ASA, made the announcement back in December that they were going to ban sexist advertising, but they gave companies six months to adjust and prepare for the ban. And so the six months are up. And what that means is we'll have, hopefully, no more fathers being incompetent at changing diapers or being bad at parenting in general. No more women acting like, you know, they don't know how to operate a car (laughs) and tearing out their hair like oh no do I put the key in the boot I don't know anything (laughs) you know nothing like that that was not very bad that was very bad (laughs) I know Um, June is listening and I wonder oh she she gave she gave me such a look (laughs) 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 um And I think this is important um, And as what they say is that gender stereotypical imagery and rhetoric can lead to unequal gender outcomes in public and private aspects of people's lives, like advertisements asking women if they're beach body ready, which can create, you know, a false narrative of who's allowed to be at the beach, who's allowed to wear swimwear and who, you know, what you're supposed to look like in order to be at the beach. So the public will be able to report ads they feel breached the ban, but the Advertising Standards Authority you know, this is not their first go round. You know, in 2016, they took Gucci to task for having a model that they deemed unhealthily thin. With this ban, Britain joins Belgium, France, Finland, Greece, Norway, South Africa, and India, which all have various wow. regulations um, that prevent gender discriminations in ads. So one thing that I found interesting was that this group that looks at advertising called Lloyd's Banking Group in 2016 found that one third of people in ads were women and they were all in roles of seduction, beauty or motherhood. Um, That's me. One of of the um, spokespeople, one of the spokespeople for ASA, Ellis, I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, Smiley, Ellis Smiley says, we don't see ourselves as social engineering. We're reflecting the changing standards in society which I think is important because of the anticipated pushback where people are going to say, you're being too politically correct. This is nonsense. These things don't matter. But it they do matter because, you know, when you see advertisements for toys, you know, a kitchen and you see the little girls in the kitchen and the boys with trucks. Well, sometimes the girls want to play with trucks too. And sometimes the boys want to play with the kitchen models um, and it can affect what they feel like they're allowed to play with. And it also reminds me of advertisements that feature elderly, feature senior citizens. They're almost always dealing with illness, uh, you know, they're for advertisements for medicine or they're having some kind of uh, clumsy clumsiness where we need to give them, you know, a medical alert bracelet or something like that, you know, that these things become kind of a joke. So we don't see um, elderly people just kind of having a full life unless it's after they've taken whatever medicine that they're advertising, right? And then it's like, now I can sit in the garden with my grandchild. Well, you know, well, you can also walk around the garden and just talk about the <laughs> fertilizer that you're using, you know, like, like that could be an advertisement instead of just telling us, you know, take this medicine so your hips can work again. I don't know. So I just <laughs> I am for this particular ban um, and I know it will be difficult to, you know, enact probably or at least um, stay on top of. But uh, I think it's I think it's important. Yeah, your, your comment about the elderly people made me think, you know, it's not just that. A lot of these advertisements show 
like, you know, the the mom who, like, cares and is very attentive and is super competent, and then the doofy dad who can't accomplish anything. Like, those are two stereotypes that need to both exist in order for the other one to exist. But we, I hardly ever see commercials for consumer products that aren't about a family. Like you hardly ever see single people, single parents, or just single people without kids, or even couples without kids using products. Like, you know, just because I don't have kids doesn't mean I don't need the convenience of a frozen dinner or like doesn't mean that I don't spill things like kids aren't the only ones who spill things at necessitating a paper towel or, or especially as a queer person I'm like anytime I see a visibly queer person or a queer couple in an ad I like my loyalty to that company I am loyal to that fucking brand forever I still <laughs> remember this one butch woman I saw in a medicine for MS. I'm never going to use that medicine, but I will remember that commercial for the rest of my life. I had two friends recently randomly appear in an Amtrak ad, and they both have sort of like queer lifestyle haircuts. And somebody who I don't even know sent me that ad to be like, isn't this great that Amtrak has queer people in the ad? I'm like, I actually know those people. (laughs) Not that I know all queer people in ads, but I'm like, it seems like such an opportunity for companies to engender loyalty among customers to put underrepresented types of people in ads that I wonder why more companies aren't doing it. When you talk about the paper towel ads, you know, I think, and it's very vague, but I think I once saw one where it was an artist who was using, you know, a paper towel to wipe off um, her brushes or something like that. So there could be more of that instead of like what you mentioned, the the mom wiping up the toddler's spill, mm-hmm. you know, or the mom wiping up the dog's um, dirty footprints, paw prints in the kitchen or something like that. So those kinds of things, I think, are relatively easy to fix if you have, you know, creative people um, who can just or who are allowed, I should say, because we don't know what goes on in those meetings when they're being pitched ideas for these kinds of commercials and who shoots what down, you know. So I'm sure that there are younger people who are like, oh, well, I use paper towels to mop up my plant spills. You know, I'm a millennial and I've got all these plants and I use paper towels to wipe up when I spill water from whatever. Um, Those were probably pitched and then, you know, they get shot down by the older executives who are like, no, no, we need to show a mom, you know. I'm very vigilant about advertising because I teach about commercials in my sex, love and race class because I show how um, companies used uh, mixed race couples to signal certain values, right? And one of the things I think has happened more and more is there is an over-representation of black women, white man, family couples in a lot of product advertisements over the past like four or five years. And now that I've said it, you'll notice it's like Tide, Morgan Stanley, like all these different products. And I think what a lot of the advertising industry hopes is that if you project onto a certain kind of person a vision for a world that they wish to see and not necessarily live in, you can still like make a lot of money. And so I think for Amtrak, you know, there are lots of queer couples on Amtrak trains every day in America, but. (laughs) 
Yeah. Whether you are or not, the fact is like, yeah, Amtrak does understand that there's queer couples in America. I love Amtrak. <laughs> it is this association. And even if your life is super homogenous, and even if you have very little context, there's a, this idea of who we want to be. And so while I think it's great to do these types of bands, I think in the end, it is profitable for advertisers because we want to believe we live in a world where we are free from sexism, even as we encounter the sexism in our everyday lives, that advertising is about projection and fantasy, and it doesn't always have to be sexual, and it doesn't always have to be nostalgic. Sometimes it's really projective and about the future. In the late 80s and early 90s, brands started to cast more what they would say ethnically ambiguous or mixed race people to show that they were a modern progressive brand. If you are a person of a certain age, you remember Benetton ads being provocative because they had like black uh, and white yeah. intimate partners or, you know, renderings of families where people are of different races, blah, blah, blah. So all of this is to say that, you know, one of the things that I think advertisers are really smart about is hedging their bets. And so even if, um, I can't remember. What was the razor company that did the to toxic masculinity ad? Gillette. Gillette. Like, before Gillette dips their toe in the kind of woke pond, they have done enough market <laughs> research, and they also know that they're competing against some of these mail-order millennial, like, uh, shaving brands. Like, they know what is up before they take these steps. And so I think if we think about, like, what does it mean for a third party to say, hey, you have to reduce the sexism in your ads, and an industry that's seeing that if they change representation, they can capture a new generation of market share. When those forces come together, I think change can really happen. But the question is, how does how do the things we see in advertising that we think are really positive, how do we make sure we see them in our real lives? Marsha, I'm so um, excited that you mentioned uh, interracial couples and commercials because about five years ago, I wrote an article online about that and it's titled, Which Kinds of Interracial Couples Spark Outrage? And it was in response the to Cheerios. the uh, Cheerios commercial. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Because in that Cheerios commercial, if for our listeners who may not remember, there is a white mother in the kitchen with her mixed race daughter and the black husband in the living room. The husband and wife are never seen together at all. <laughs> it's just the little girl going back and forth between them because she's concerned about her father's health or whatever. And it caused so much backlash that Cheerios had to um, disable comments on their YouTube channel because people were so upset at the thought of this black man with a white woman. But I show that there are always these commercials with black women being partnered with people outside of their race that don't that don't have the kind of backlash that that inspired. So oh, that's when you so bring that up, it, 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 I'm so glad that you brought that up because I have looked at that and I always pay attention to that. And there's also, there are like commercials with Asian women, with white mm -hmm. men, no problem. You know, it, it's, it's not an issue, but as soon as there is a black man with a white woman, it becomes a major problem. I um, am fascinated by what commercials, um, how, you know, couples are used in commercials. And to kind of go back to sexism, if you look at car commercials, almost always when it's a pairing of a man and a woman, the man is driving the car and the woman is in the passenger seat. And it's very rare that you will see the woman driving and the man in the passenger seat. And even, you know, when they have kids in the car, 
it's almost always the man driving. So I think this band could, you know, kind of look at uh, situations like that where, we, you know, it's OK to have a woman drive a man around for a little bit. I don't know if there are, if people think that that is sexist, seeing a, a woman drive a man around. I don't I don't know how that could be, but maybe that's what, you know, it's in response to. But it seems like a very heteronormative, traditional kind of situation when we have these car commercials like that. Yeah, I think it's it is going to be hard for them to define or enforce this ban. You know, they've they've said, well, like a woman a woman cleaning, that's not sexist, but a woman cleaning while her husband is relaxing, that's sexist. Uh I thought this was funny. They apparently emphasized, the advertising regulator emphasized, that advertisements featuring glamorous, attractive, and successful or healthy people are still allowed. So no worries there. Um, But it did make me think about the new way that advertisements are bought and distributed, because it's not just, you know, we have... 60 channels on the TV and I'm flipping through them all. It's I'm on the internet and the same ad for one pair of shoes is following me around wherever I go. You can choose which people get your ads in a much more specific way now through the internet and cookies than you were ever able to when you were just buying billboards or even television commercials on specific channels or in specific shows. So when I was thinking about, oh, what are some of the sexist ads that I've seen recently or, you know, ads that made me upset or whatever. I I couldn't think of many in part because I'm not seeing a lot of like television ads, which is where there's actually a narrative and there can be a little bit more stereotyping. I think because I'm mostly watching shows on online streaming platforms and, you know, I'm going on websites and there's, there's not a lot of the same kinds of commercials. And so I wonder if there's any sort of effort to target the more sexist advertising toward people who would be more amenable to seeing a sexist ad like, you know, white men over 65 or something like that, because you can do that kind of stuff now. I was also thinking about those Axe ads, you know, Axe body spray, the famously (laughs) sexy perfume that men used, Um, uh, because this new ban bans ads that connect physical features with success in the romantic or social spheres. And those Axe ads were all about these schlubby guys spraying themselves with this incredibly sensual fragrance. And then all of these hot women were into them. So it actually wasn't about anything about their physical features attracting people. It was just specifically about the product. So I wonder if that's what all advertising in Britain is going to be now, these like schlubby people having products that attract people instead of anything about their actual bodies. Well, one of the things I'm also curious about is that um, if you watch British television generally and advertising, it's like pretty cheeky stuff. And so I'm really curious how they're going to continue to use some of the kind of outrageous tropes that I think are more acceptable in the UK than they are here in that kind of advertising. But But I think that at the end of the day, you know, these types of social interventions are possible in some places than the than others. Like I don't see this happening in the US, but I do think, you know, through the ad council and through public service announcements, there's a way that the advertising industry is very self-conscious about being critiqued and they're more likely to suggest that they're getting better rather than to listen to someone else tell them do better. All right, I think that's all the time we have for sexist advertising. 
listeners, have you seen any good, and by good I mean sexist, ads <laughs> recently? Email us at thewaves at slate.com. All right, recommendation time. Nicole, what do you have? Uh, my recommendation this week is a writing challenge that's been started by author Jamie Attenberg, and it is called 1,000 Words of Summer, and it's just for two weeks. Um, and the goal is to write 1,000 words a day, and it can be about anything, uh, whatever project you want. Uh, it doesn't have to be the same project every day. It can, it's just a matter of sitting down and devoting time to get down a thousand words a day if possible. If you go over, that's fine. If you go under, that's fine too. The point is just, again, just to kind of give yourself permission to sit and, and write. And it could be kind of a stream of consciousness thing. Um, if you have a goal in mind, that's fine too. Uh, she developed a tiny letter about it, and that is at tinyletter.com forward slash 1,000 words of summer. And 1,000 is the um, number. And unfortunately, she is... Um, filled with subscribers. She's reached the maximum amount of subscribers, but you can look at the daily letters that she sends out via email at the um, archive that's on the page. So I, I just think it's a really, you know, it's just a really nice challenge to give yourself. There's no real objective. There's no, you know, it's not like, um, national novel writing month in November, which gives people, you know, it can be a little, too much pressure for people to feel like they have to finish a complete novel in the month of November. But, um, you know, people do it and it's great. But with a thousand words of summer, I think it's just a really nice, um, you know, a nice little challenge for yourself. And it's only for two weeks, but you can keep going as long as you want. And so I, I recommend that. And again, it's, it's at tinyletter.com forward slash 1000 words of summer. Awesome. Marsha? So I recommend two articles that have been floating around this week. The first one is an opinion piece by Jessica Knoll called Smash the Wellness Industry. Why are so many smart women falling for its harmful pseudoscientific claims? And it's just a wonderfully written piece about the author's struggle with the wellness industry talking about cleanses and purges and monitoring your diet and all of the ways that women who should know better, quote unquote, um, are really sucked into what the wellness industry says about how being healthy is ultimately tied to being thin, even when it suggests that it's not. And so I really enjoyed that piece from the New York Times. And the second is a piece from Natalia Pertzala from The Atlantic called The Fitness Craze That Changed the Way Women Exercise. And it's about jazzercise and <laughs> the development Ooh. of jazzercise as a way to make women comfortable in exercise spaces, its franchise model, and this idea of boutique fitness that has often been marketed to women and the reasons why. And it's just such a thoughtful and well-reported, historically-based piece about this type of fitness that I think many people see as really outdated, but still has the capacity to bring women together, make women into entrepreneurs, and really explore what does it mean for women to have an exercise experience designed for them. And so I didn't know jazzercise could be so th uh, thoughtful and fascinating. And so it was on the June 16th, uh, 2019 um, Atlantic. So those two articles about the fitness industry and wellness, I think are excellent reads. And one of our listeners actually emailed us asking us to discuss that article. So to that listener, you're welcome. <laughs> okay. 
I am recommending Tales of the City, a Netflix miniseries. It's an adaptation of a series of novels and then a PBS miniseries from the 90s. Um, it stars Laura Linney, Olympia Dukakis, and most notably, the impossibly adorable Ellen Page. It's incredibly soapy and unsubtle, which I appreciate. It's a lot of fun to watch, even if I was rolling my eyes during some of it. The story centers on this aging trans woman, Dukakis, who lives in this big house in San Francisco that she's been renting rooms out of for decades. So the series, this this new series, starts when Laura Linney's character which she's reprising, uh, who's been gone for 20-something years, comes back to San Francisco to reunite with the daughter she abandoned 20-something years ago, Ellen Page. Uh, the show is really colorful and queer. There's, uh, It's a true ensemble cast. There's a ton of juicy plot lines. And it sort of made me nostalgic for a San Francisco that I never even actually knew. It's, again, called Tales of the City. It's on Netflix now. That's our show. Thank you to our production assistant, Alex Barish, June Thomas, who provided production assistance, and our producer, Danielle Hewitt. For Marsha Chatlin and Nicole Perkins, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.